0: Welcome to The Number Station, a podcast in collaboration with Continuous Stationery, Plymouth College of Art, Plymouth Marine Laboratory and the Impact Lab. My guest is Dr. Lee Demora, Marine Ecosystem Modeler at Plymouth Marine Laboratory. After completing a PhD in High Energy Physics at the University of Lancaster and CERN, Lee now studies models of climate change at PML with a focus on marine modelling, model evaluation and has a side interest in music. Our main topic in this podcast is Earth System Music, a project that Dr. DeMora and colleagues took to the Blue Dot Music and Science Festival at the Jodrell Bank Radio Telescope in 2019. In brief, the project takes simulated data from the United Kingdom Earth System Model, the UKESM, such as Ocean pH, Ocean Current Speeds and Direction and is then translated into musical form in a process termed musification. The aim of this podcast is to understand the process involved in more detail and find out how we as non-scientists, academics, researchers, artists and policy makers may work with scientists to interpret data and participate in various capacities. So Lee, over to you. How are you today?
1: Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me today, Nick. Um, <laughs> everything's going well, I think.
0: Good. I'm pleased to hear it. So um, that was quite a, a rough introduction of what is quite a complex topic. Um, so just on off the top of your head, what would you like to add to that?
1: Um, yeah, I'd just say that um, this is it's kind it's not the main bulk of our work within the UKSM. But it's an, an interesting and sort of fun way to hopefully explain some of the methods that we use to um, model the Earth, earth climate.
0: Me seems a bit like um, how trying to scratch an itch that scientists must have very regularly which is how do you get this really important data out into the public sphere without it sounding completely onerous and as if you're sort of preaching to an unconverted unintelligent sort of gathering of people and your project seems to really answer that in that you can can show this important data, but in a fun and engaging way.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for that. Um, that's really kind of one of the main goals of this project. We, um, we have all this scientific data from the UK Earth System model and other models. And uh, the, th- the thing is the general public, they know a lot about climate change. People would have heard about it. They would have watched the David Attenborough programs. They will see it in the news regularly. But what people don't necessarily know is um, how we make these calculations and how we make these predictions. What are the tools that we use as scientists to um, find out about uh, what the future climate will look like? And so the, the Earth System Music work aims to introduce some of the methods that we use in Earth System modeling and make them more transparent and more clear for the wider public.
0: And why is that important?
1: Well, I'd like to think that, um, you know, I guess the, I, the public may seem to think that models are like a black box that you, you switch on and then you get a simulation at the other end. Whereas, in fact, there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot of uh, we make sure that we understand everything that happens at every step along the way. We don't just produce one simulation and say this is the world. This is what the future will be like. We'll have, you know, a wide range of experiments that cover every aspect of how the model can behave, and then hopefully using all of those different experiments together, we can have an idea of the uncertainties in our model, how much we can trust them, uh, what range of possible futures the model can predict, how the model will behave in the absence of like human pollution in the atmosphere, in the absence of carbon dioxide, like anthropogenic carbon dioxide, I mean. And so with all of these different experiments that we produce, we hope that by explaining them more clearly, the wider public will have more um, sort of more trust in climate models and uh, sort of believe our predictions with a bit more. uh, uh, Yeah, have a stronger belief in them, basically a stronger acceptance of them.
0: And we're going to touch on that idea of public trust in the data a little bit later on in the podcast. Where did the idea come from? Well, so the UK Eurosystem Model
1: Project had a stall set up at the uh, Blue Dot Music and Science Festival at Dodger Bank last summer in 2019. We, uh, we had all sorts of really cool stuff for the wider public. We have a, a spherical touchscreen where we showed models, our, our model results. We had um, several screens. We had like a little game show panel. We had some puzzles for the kids some coloring and stuff, but we didn't actually have any music at the Science of Music Festival. So we, when we got home from this festival, from our outreach tour, we decided, let's let's see what we can do and see if we can make some music from our model. And so that was the genesis of the Earth System Music Project.
0: So it sounds very much as if you were uh, instrumental, uh, if you can forgive the pun, uh, in in helping sort of get this project off the ground, because you have a musical uh, as sort of interest as well
1: yeah yeah i have a, a strong interest in music i've always been i've always loved music i uh, first learned to play uh, i think the recorder and the clarinet when i was you know six seven years old and i've been making music ever since but i mean i, I must admit i'm certainly not the first person to take scientific data and create music out of it there's quite a wider range of um, pieces available and so um i looked at these pieces and many of them like I think there's one called the climate symphony for instance and they're beautiful pieces and they perform live but they all seem to use observational data sets which means that the are limited to the data that's available in the recent past so basically from 1960 onwards to now so Lee where is the data from well so um the United Kingdom Earth System model is a we, we, is a simulation of the Earth system. It's produced by uh, several NERC centres and, and the Met Office at, uh, inside the UK.
0: So NERC is the National Environment Research Council, and this is a series of research centres around the UK. And according to their website, and there's a link to this in the show notes, they have centres for Antarctic surveys, geological surveys, uh, atmospheric science, and centres for Earth observation, and that's the one that Lee's talking about. He also talks about CMIP, and that's something to bear in mind because it crops up later in the podcast.
1: It's uh, made from a, by a team of uh, twenty or so core scientists, with one hundred and fifty sort of people outside the core group also working on it. So it's a really big model. It's actually the uh, one the UK's main entrant into the Coupled Model Intercomparison Project which is um, CMIP is what it's called. Um, CMIP is an international effort to align uh, climate model work so that they can be compared to each other in a straightforward way. It's things like uh, making sure everybody uses the same format and the same names for things and everybody sends the data at the same sort of time so that it's available and can
0: be used. Is it flippant to say that that might be a kind of an ISO a, an ISO standard for climate change and the, the CMIP?
1: Yeah, it's sort of a set of standards, and a, but it's also a, a project in its own right, the CMIP. And they're, they're currently on the, the sixth version of it. So CMIP 6 is what it's called. And so uh, I believe CMIP 6 has data from around 100 climate models from around the world. And um, they actually, they form the scientific backbone for the modeling component of um, international climate policy for instance, the um, you may have heard of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Uh, they produce these reports about the, the current under- status of understanding of climate change modeling, and uh, so the data datasets, including things like UKSM, uh, form the scientific component of those reports. And then, of course, those reports go on and inform policy decisions and um, policy changes. For instance, the Paris Agreement of two thousand and fifteen was underpinned by the IPCC reports, which were underpinned by the CMIP models.
0: Which was underpinned by the UK ESM
1: Yeah, well, we, we weren't around in those days, but its predecessor was part of CMIP 5, yeah.
0: On the same topic then, so you mentioned uh, about 150 people, 20 in a core group, and then 150. Can you just sort of describe that?
1: Okay, so um, the, the way that the, the project is set up, the UK ESM it's LTSM, so a long-term multi-center multi science project. Um, th- we have a, a team of core people who are fully dedicated to the UKSM project. Like, that's their main job that they do. You know, close to 100% of the work time is on the ESM project. So that includes me, and I believe there's 22 of us within the UK. And then sort of in the, the wider project, the LTSM component of it, That's scientists who may spend maybe um, 20% of their time or 50 or 40% of their time working on the UKSM project and contributing to it. So that's how we sort of divide up between the core group, which are 100%, and the wider community, which are less time, but also contribute as well.
0: How long have you been working full time on this uh, project then?
1: I've been a member of the core team for about five years now, I think, possibly six.
0: Okay, so you've seen it evolve and, and change over that period of time.
1: Yeah, and then for a couple of years before that, I was on like a, a I was working full time on a project that informed the the early decisions of the uh, UKSM project as
0: well. A lot of changes in those five years.
1: Uh, yes and no, but we've we've definitely from what we started with to where we are, we're we're pretty happy with how the project has gone as a whole and you know it's one of the more complex models within the CNIP6 group and the fact that we've managed to get all our simulations done and submitted on time to participate in the IPCC reports we're all we're very proud of where the model is now.
0: When you say uh, one of the most uh, one of the more complex models um, is that because of the scope of what you're trying to uh, model or is it because of the sophistication of the the model itself
1: it, uh, yeah when I say complex I mean the um, the level of sophistication within the model itself so um typically w- when we think of a, a climate model I guess a lot of people will think of like the weather predictions you'll get from the BBC or the mid-office and those are weather models and it's not quite the same as the climate model so the the, the climate model includes all aspects of um the air circulation within the atmosphere But it also includes the atmospheric chemistry, any kind of dusts and aerosols, clouds were included in the atmosphere. Then similarly, the the Earth system also includes a model of the ocean, which will contain the movement of the water, how it interacts with the heat from the atmosphere and from the sun. It will include all aspects of marine life on there. Um, Sea ice is another component. And then similarly on land, the, the Earth system model will include Uh, terrestrial biology, plants, agriculture. It will include changes in land use, like urbanisation, and it will include um, the interactions between all the different components. So wind blowing over land, lifting dust up to the atmosphere, and similarly, um, the flux of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into the ocean, for instance.
0: So um, that's sort of blown my mind, I'll be honest. So what you're saying is you would track the diminishing uh, uh, un, undeveloped land over a period of time um, to, to it becoming more developed. So new cities being created, um, more houses being built, all, all those sort of things. Are you, is that what you're saying?
1: Well, um, within the context of uh, CMIP models, of course, we can't model you know, human behavior like someone building a house at a certain point in time. The, uh, the, the, the grid that we use for the land surface it, and for the ocean and the atmosphere, in fact, is around one by one degrees, so one latitude by long, one longitude.
0: So this idea of one degree latitude, one degree longitude is a way of breaking up the planet into grid formation, and each of the cubes of that grid are a hundred kilometers by a hundred kilometers at the equator, and then they get smaller as we move towards the poles.
1: So we don't do anything as um, as complex as you know roads and cities and things, but what we'll have will be a fraction of that land, which is urban. So say 5% of the land within a one degree box is urbanized or, but a second caveat to that point is also that within CMIP6, the land use changes like urbanization are actually prescribed by the experiment. So we don't, it doesn't arise out of the experiment, but rather it's forced upon the experiment
0: can you clarify that position. point a little bit are you saying that you're you're saying the percentage of change of urbanization that will occur within this uh, specific point on the grid
1: sort of uh, we'd like to imagine that the models are fully free running but they're not entirely free running so you can't just set it off and then let it go and it will produce all of human history and then get to the now and then go to the future like there's a lot of things that are prescribed that are sort of imposed onto the simulation so that would be things like urbanization but I mean more perhaps um, a better example would be the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere so that is a prescribed um, feature that is included in many historical simulations so the climate responds to the historical carbon dioxide instead of uh, free running and producing its own. So
0: let's let's just focus on the carbon dioxide. So, when you say prescribed, does that mean that you're that you're saying what the level is? Uh, anyway? Yes, that's exactly. So right. where so there must be a point then in the models, uh, sort of reaching up to the modern modern. To to the present day, that it was running on its own on it on on, on itself, and then yes. at a certain time you interject with this prescribed quantity of CO 2s is that correct?
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, um, what you've just um, brought up is the the concept of a pre industrial control model. So. What a pre-industrial control model is, is it's exactly that. It's a model of the Earth's climate system where there is no um, industrial revolution. So it just keeps on running as if none of the burning of the coal and the atmospheric atmospheric pollution occurred. So it will just keep running and it will go through its, its own natural cycles and we just keep that running for as, as long as we need to and then from there we we will branch off historical simulations not just one but several at different points along the pre-industrial control run so that we say okay it's the pre-industrial control run it's run for 500 years now uh we're going to say this year is 1850 and we start the industrial revolution now and then we'll let the pre-industrial control run go for a little bit and then we'll start a second historical simulation. Let's say this one's at um, 620 years. So now the year 620 of the pre-industrial control run is now the year 1850 of our second historical run. And so we produce several historical runs from different starting points along the pre-industrial control. So it's two different kinds of simulations that we produce. And um, like funnily enough, we actually use these concepts in the musical pieces.
0: Totally. So what is musification?
1: <laughs> okay, so um, musification is the process of turning data or information into sound and then into music. So it's um, it's quite common that we have um, use sound for um, monitoring certain things. For instance, in um, in medicine, it's very common, but also in things like um, in places where the The visual system is preoccupied already, so um, uh, underwater diving and uh, mining tend to use these kind of things, Uh, fighter jets, um, anesthesiologists, there's a lot of um, auditory processing of data in in those fields, whereas in science, it's a bit bit more uh, unusual to do it, for instance. But the the most famous scientific example is the Geiger counter, which turns a, a, a... ionizing radiation into a, a distinctive click sound. So um, that's that's the process of sonification of data, whereas sonification is literally converting data into sounds. Musification is converting data into sounds into music as well. And uh, the distinction between sound and music is definitely a philosophical one. However, I kind of feel that I'm, the pieces that I wrote that I prepared for the Earth System Modeling I think, are recognisable as music and not just sound. We, we tend to use um, sort of distinct musical features. So we use chords and scales from Western music tradition, so C major and A minor and so on. So they're definitely recognisable as using musical notes.
0: Yes, they are, absolutely. And we're going to play a piece in a minute.
1: But so far, almost all of the pieces are solo piano pieces written um, using data from the UK Earth System Model. So this one in particular has four different voices or data sets that we use to uh, form the piece. It's data from the Drake Passage Current, the total air sea flux of CO2, the Southern Hemisphere Ice extent, and the Southern Ocean Mean Surface Temperature. So these are four important metrics of the health of the Earth System Model, especially focusing on the Southern Ocean. and the data sets that we, the, the model experiments that we use include the pre-industrial control run, the historical simulation, and then SSP2, SSP1 2.5, which is a uh, sort of a f- climate future with a very li- little um, carbon impact, like, so a very, a very light future with a low climate change.
0: The next piece of music that you're going to hear is called the Earth System Allegro and Allegro is meaning to be performed at a brisk speed.
1: This is the first piece that we made as part of the Earth System music set and it sort of is built to introduce some of the key concepts of musicification, as well as introduce some of the ways that we produce models of the climate system. Because um, I wanted to start with something that should hopefully feel familiar to the audience. So the, the chord progression or the way that the musification process works is we have the original data set, and then we sort of force it into specific scales. So we give it, give it a range of data sets, um, sorry, a range of possible notes. So let's say for the Drake Passage Current, which is the, the melody for this piece, let's say that it has to go between middle C and three octaves above middle C. the the keyboard. So that means that when the Drake Passage is at its highest current, at around 170 um, teragrams per second of water, that's a strong current, it will play three octaves above middle C. And then when the Drake Passage current is at its slowest, at around 140 teragrams per second, then it will be playing a note around middle C. So the, the pitch of the note corresponds with the value of the data.
0: But you didn't stop there, did you, in the Allegro piece, that you used uh, several other pieces of uh, of simulated data as well. Can you describe those in some detail?
1: Yeah. So uh, from a musical context, I decided it would probably be best to have just one uh, data set to correspond with the melody, and then several others to do the rhythm parts. So in, in typical musical pieces, the melody is the highest set of notes, and then the other ones are the lower notes. So that's what I've done here as well. The other three data sets all have um, gradually lower ranges. So I believe that the air sea flux of CO2 is about two octaves below middle sea to middle sea. And then the Southern hemisphere iso extent is around three octaves below middle sea to two, to one octave below middle sea. And then the Southern mean temperature, Southern ocean mean temperature is uh, lower again still. And instead of being, allowed to vary within each note of the scale of C major, these three data sets vary along the familiar pattern of C, G, A minor, F. This is the so-called uh, four chord song that you probably know from, for instance, uh, the Beatles song, Let It Be, or Bob Marley's No Woman No Cry.
0: So these are really familiar um, sequences of chords that are that have cropped up uh, time and time again in the charts and uh, in yeah. sort of popular music through, throughout the sort of modern age. It's a very, very common chord progression.
1: And, and the reason why we chose something like that was one, because it was the first piece and we didn't want to go anything too strange, but also we don't want to bring out some crazy esoteric jazz chords because I think that would just scare <laughs> people away.
0: Yeah, OK, it's just, so you, it, it's listenable. That's what you're saying, yeah. I guess.
1: I mean, it's, it's also worth noting like when you learn to play the piano or most instruments, the first chord that you learn is C major because that that's the one that just has all the white notes on the keyboard. There's no none of the black keys are played.
0: I think we understand the process of musification now that you you're choosing a range of notes uh, and you've chosen this sort of set of melodies and and notes that are familiar to us, but the um, the the four sets of data the the drake passage uh do you want to talk about that for a moment why is that important perhaps
1: okay so the drake passage current is um is how we measure one of the strongest currents in the global ocean it's the antarctic circumpolar current now this is a current that circles around antarctica and the Drake's Passage is the point between the Antarctic Peninsula and the tip of South America. So it's the narrowest part of this current's trajectory. And so, I mean, it's it's infamous among sailors as being one of the most treacherous parts of the ocean to sail. It's very, very strong current. It's the strongest current in the ocean. And so, um, by choosing, the, we chose it for this piece because it does vary quite a lot in time. So it will go up and go down, go up and go down as opposed to several other metrics like temperature, which only seem to go up in the historical context. This is one of the key currents that we make sure that our model is in the right ballpark in the historical period. Why? It uh, has a huge impact on the global climate, as it uh, the Southern Ocean is um, one of the most important oceans in terms of its impact on the global climate. Sort of the rhythm parts of this piece are the total air sea flux of CO2,
0: the total flux of co2 did yeah, you say from
1: yeah the total flux of co2 from the atmosphere into the ocean
0: okay so is this a process of uh, how the ocean absorbs co2 from the atmosphere is that right
1: exactly yeah it's a total per year i might i might mention so uh, so each year the total amount of carbon that's taken absorbed from into the ocean from the atmosphere in the case of uh, this particular set of data from the pre-industrial up to the SSP 1, 2.5 scenario, we actually observe a gradual increase up to the year 2030 and then a uh, rapid decline. And that's because in this model, the amount of carbon that's absorbed by the ocean does decrease after it, it hits the peak.
0: So we are going to come on to this a bit later in the podcast, but when the simulations are created, there are varying scenarios for future predictions. Some of those scenarios are quite bleak, but the Allegro piece itself has quite an optimistic future.
1: The third dataset is a Southern Hemisphere Ice extent. So that is the surface of the ocean that's covered by sea ice in the Southern
0: Hemisphere. So I imagine that's just going to go from Middle Sea down to whatever uh, whatever range you've got at the lower level because of it diminishing
1: yeah once again well actually once again in this this particular future scenario is quite an optimistic one and it actually reaches a low point around 2040 in our simulation and then gradually starts to
0: recover that's another really interesting part of your project so and the fourth data set just very briefly then
1: yeah that's the um mean sea surface temperature in the southern ocean
0: what is the mean surface temperature in the southern o- ocean then off off the top of your head <laughs> oh
1: well um it's typically around five degrees if you use i believe the cutoff that we use is um the 50th 50 degrees south so the southern ocean and all the ocean below 50 degrees south
0: from your sort of understanding how how much is that sort of fluctuated between uh this the control set of the data in the 1750s and, and sort of to to date, uh, what what sort of obvious pattern is that presenting to you in the data?
1: Well, the, the variation in the pre-industrial control is actually, it's not that bad. It goes from around, I guess, 4.9 to 5.4 degrees Celsius, th- this particular, the mean of this particular region. And um, yeah, then the historical similar has similar variations. But then once we get to, you know, the climate change of the second half of the 20th century, it rises very rapidly up to six degrees in this scenario.
0: And how does that sort of influence the the Allegro piece of music?
1: Well, all of these these factors combined make it have a, a bit of a crescendo towards the end, so everything gets higher or lower and louder.
0: Okay, let's have a listen. The Earth System and they grow. Okay, Lee, what are the three component parts of the, the data sets that we look at in, in, this, in these pieces of music?
1: So it's a, a big part of how we produce models of the climate are uh, the different experiments that we can run with our model. So, I mean, we, people tend to encounter climate change models when they do encounter them, thinking about The future scenarios so this model says that the temperature will rise by this amount by the year 2100 and so that's generally how people encounter them however there's you can't just have the model start in 2100 and get the right answer you know what happened today depends on what happened yesterday and it goes back quite a long way so in order to produce the accurate prediction for the future, we need to have an accurate model that produces the recent history as well. And once again, to get a model that produces the recent history, we need to have produced a model that is, can run quite happily to equilibrium in the pre-industrial sense as well. So those are the three primary kinds of um, models of the Earth system that we use. So the pre-industrial, the historical, and then the future experiments. There are others as well, but those are the main three that I've used for these pieces.
0: So the way that I've been thinking about this is the sort of 1750s to the 1850s is like a, an experimental control uh, in the sort of old-fashioned old kind of science sense that you need a you need a control mechanism in your experiments to make sure that everything's working. Is that Does that sound about right to you?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Although the actual pre-industrial control run didn't just run for 150 years, it actually ran for more than a thousand years.
0: Obviously, then we have the sort of more recent times, where I presume that we have got some observational data, uh, and then which is the middle part of the experiment, and then you have the future, the future, the predictive uh, models. And these can be broken down into many different categories. But if you've got three or four, what are the main three or four categories that they get that you sort of uh, simulate? So
1: going into the future, um, I, I generally tend to think of them as the uh, business as usual, where everything, just all of the emissions just continue to grow. And we have a very like strong amount of climate change, like a lot of climate change in the future. Like we're talking... Five or six degrees of global warming by the end of the twenty-first century, and then there's sort of um, there's sort of middle middle road scenarios where we get three or four degrees of warming by the end of the century, and then there's sort of green scenarios where we try to keep it to one and a half or two degrees. So we actually produce five scenarios in total that go on that spectrum. But in in the music, we only
0: I've only used two or three of them, I think, No, three of them. Okay, and so the allegro had a business as usual. No, yep.
1: no, it had the um, the gentlest sort of a Paris Agreement scenario.
0: Okay, so that I'm glad you brought that in because uh, for two reasons: one, it, it's sort of familiar, and two, obviously, the data that you're producing is used to inform the Paris Agreement. Uh, and uh, some insight for people who aren't fully aware of what that is is basically to to sort of bottleneck emissions to within or, or temperature and, uh, and emissions in kind to about two degrees of pre-industrial levels. So this sort of night. Uh, 1750s uh, uh, to the 1900s, those sort of pre-industrial levels, that's what they're talking about, and to keep the temperature within about two, two degrees or optimally one and a half degrees in similarity to those temperatures. Can you, can you give us the title and the description of the next piece of music that we're going to listen to, please?
1: Yeah. So the next piece that we're going to listen to today is the global sea surface temperature area. So this is a piece, an aria is typically produced, uh, an opera piece with just one voice. So in this case, we only use data from the sea surface temperature. This is the global mean for the ocean only. So it doesn't include anything from the land or the atmosphere. And um, what this this piece does is it starts with the pre-industrial control run from 1750 onwards. And then the historical voice is added in 1850 to 2015. And then from 2015 to uh, 2100, we have a business as usual scenario, an overshoot scenario and the Paris Agreement.
0: Can you give me an, an understanding of what the overshoot scenario might mean? So an, an overshoot scenario
1: is where we uh, continue to grow CO2 and then rapidly drop them after the year 2050. So it's business as usual up to 2050 and then... A very very quick decline in emissions after that so we kind of we overshoot the target and then have to come back towards it if that makes sense that's why it's called an overshoot
0: yes it does it makes perfect sense and i imagine that this music is going to diverge at the end of end of the piece when we get into this sort of uh, future scenarios that there's going to be a massive divergence
1: yeah absolutely Should we, should we listen to it now?
0: Yeah, brilliant. That was really interesting to listen to because so the 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 climbing piece at the end there, that's just climbing and climbing and climbing. That on your on the, on the video on YouTube, that says that's the business as usual scenario, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. You could really hear it shoot off on its own, really.
0: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It just doesn't come. It, it just doesn't stop. It's it's. Uh, I mean, it's climbing even right right up until the very last note and obviously that's just where you've cut cut off the simulation to keep the piece of music <laughs> down to a sort of a specific length but if we so what's what do you take away from that then from a, from your perspective
1: well this i mean from the scientific point of view i hope that the
0: business as usual isn't
1: what we do as a society as a planet because I don't think the world will be livable at the end of the symmetry if that's the case. So hopefully this will, you know, scare us into changing our ways a little bit. At least that's not necessarily this piece of music, but the, the, you know, including the business as usual scenario in CMIP6. So hundreds of models that all agree that business as usual would be catastrophic. That's one of the things. And then from the, From the music and artistic side of this, it's actually quite a little interesting thing that we used um, A minor harmonic the whole way through. So that's a scale instead of a chord. So it allows the notes to vary and become discordant quite a lot of the time. Whereas if you just use a a chord instead of a, a scale, then it tends to enforce the harmonies a lot stronger. So that was a little interesting artistic choice we made. But then we kind of, by choosing A minor harmonic, we really wanted to have a illicit sense of dread and foreboding, you know, this, this deep note played by the PI control that goes the whole way through the piece and then just how much the business as usual diverges from there, like I I know that it's actually, um, the scientist in me doesn't necessarily want to do that kind of try to get an emotional response from a data set whereas the musician very much wants only that. So it's quite an interesting
0: sort of... It's quite an interesting distinction that you're making that, um, that it elicits both responses in you, I suppose, that seeing it, seeing it in that way, but also hearing it in that way, Maybe and maybe that's the difference. Just looking at it in on paper uh, doesn't necessarily elicit the sort of uh the emotional response but actually hearing it and feeling the vibration of the the melancholy and the discordance and the the runaway uh rising uh does something else and maybe that's kind of uh why you chose music as as a way of uh um sort of uh, bring it, bringing this data to life in a different way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really one of the goals of this kind of project, to try to link the what can often be a, a dry scientific subject with uh, actually trying to get an emotional response out of the audience participating in, in the um, process. Although I would also make the point that there's a sort of implication on the visual-only science because everybody always uses red for business as usual, and then green for the sort of gentler scenarios. And I think that that also is a way to get a small emotional re- reaction to the different data sets in through the back door.
0: Uh, yeah, I think we're all quite conditioned by sort of traffic lights, aren't we? Yeah. What are the aims, just briefly?
1: Plus, course. So, I mean, one of, one, of the, one of the key points that I've found by doing various outreach events is that, people who are interested in Earth System models are already well aware of climate change and are already fully on board that we need to reduce our emissions. And so just showing climate change by itself isn't really what I was trying to do in the Earth System Music Project. I was really hoping to um, use music to explain the methods that we use as Earth System modellers so that people can have a better understanding of how we come to the conclusions and how we make these predictions with the hope that that means there'll be less skepticism models
0: in the future. Okay, so let's let's attack it from that kind of word of skepticism. As a kind of a non-scientist, I'm interested to know how one works out what a mean temperature of, of something might be and I think this sort of leads into how you feel about the public's general scepticism of how scientific models arrive. So I wonder if you would like to explain briefly how one would sort of come to the actual f- figures that you, that you are being used in the models.
1: Well I mean there's obviously there's a lot of work to produce a model of the Earth system in this way but probably if we just go back to the, the basic building blocks of how we make a model is probably a good starting point. So to, to produce a model of the Earth system, we we take a, a map of the world, including the ocean and the land and the atmosphere, and we cut it up into little boxes. And we try to understand what's happening inside each little box. So um, my background is marine biology. So I'll focus on one of the boxes in the ocean. Let's say, um, i don't know in the middle of the the north atlantic so we have this box in our model and it's got boxes next to it and boxes below it and boxes above it and inside that box we need to understand all of the physics and all of the biology and all of the chemistry that's going on in there and how that interacts with the rest of the earth system so the box the water inside that box it has a specific temperature and it has a uh salinity, it has a density, and it has movement in each direction. So we need to not only know, make make a guess of what the temperature is there, like how it's heated from the sun, for instance, and how, but we also need to know the movement of the water from the adjacent boxes. So that's how the physics will work. So we need to know movement of temperature and salinity and pressures and densities and so on. But then in that box, there's also going to be marine life there's going to be dissolved nutrients like nitrate and phosphate silicate and iron are dissolved in that water. And so the the phytoplankton, so marine plants that live inside that box, they will consume those nutrients and then they'll grow and they'll add carbon to their bodies just like the plants in your garden do. So those phytoplankton, we need to know how they're growing as well. And then as their plants, they'll get eaten by herbivores. So we have zooplankton that come along and eat the phytoplankton. And zooplankton are marine animals, like little tiny marine animals, like krill, for instance. And um, so then from there, there are other zooplankton that eat other zooplankton, the smaller zooplankton. So there's, marine, there's zooplankton predators and zooplankton herbivores. So we need to understand all of those different parts. And then, and how they are in this little box we're looking at but also how they move from the boxes next to them or below them or above them and so then from there we have a similar processes on the land surface and in the atmosphere in terms of the atmospheric physics circulation and chemistry and once we've had this at a specific point in time we then have a, a mathematical model that calculates how we expect it to change given certain conditions. Like, is it cloudy or is it sunny? Is it nighttime? Uh, What is the wind doing? How will that affect the water movement? What is the adjacent water moving? And so we turn the handle and move it forward an hour, and then we calculate what the ecosystem is doing. And then we turn it forward, move it an hour forward. And we do that for thousands of years. And um, when we look at data, Like, for instance, in this figure, in this piece, the global sea surface temperature, we look at every single box in the surface of the ocean, we look at the temperature of that box, and then we take an average of them, and then we take the average of that for the entire year. So that's how we get to these data sets. It's actually quite a complex process, and that's why it takes so many people to do it.
0: So if you're producing models with such uh, complexity, That must mean that other scientists can use that data as well and that model for their own projects.
1: Yeah, that's one of the basic tenets of the CMIP project, especially CMIP 6, is to make sure that everybody's models are available to the general public, to other scientists, but also to the public, and that all of the data meets a set of standardized formats so that you don't have to write a different interface for each model. So there's actually a model available from a... Well, I think there's 100 models in CMIP6 at the moment. And all of that data sets are all available to the public, to other scientists, and even to artists if they want to take an interest in in investigating it themselves.
0: What's the next meeting similar to the Paris Agreement? I thought there was supposed to be one this year, but it's been cancelled in Glasgow.
1: Yeah, it's been postponed for another this year current, yeah. so it's going to be in September 2021 and so they they have these um these COP meetings they're called uh, they have them every year although this year you know it was postponed and um, every I believe it's every five years they have a sort of a big a bigger meeting where they have summaries and they have policymakers and they come up with these kind of decisions so the Glasgow was going to be the next one the next five-year one. So um, data sets like these are used in those meetings in order to inform policy decisions.
0: But, so how does this stuff get delivered to, to people who are making, you know, who are actually signing these agreements?
1: The process of getting the scientific data from CMIP into something like the Paris Agreement There's the uh, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, Assessment Reports. So those are reports that are produced every five or six years in line with the the COP meetings. And those take these data sets, compare them, they evaluate the models make sure that the models are able to reproduce the historical performance as well as the future stuff, and then those data sets and those um, model outcomes are summarized in the assessment report documents, which are still, I've got one in my office and it weighs four kilograms. It's like a thousand (laughs) page book. It's called a summary, but it doesn't feel like a summary. And so um, the opening chapter of that is the summary for policymakers and that's 20, 30 pages that covers everything using really clear, really layman uh, acceptable terms. And I, I think lots of people should be able, should read those and it should be relatively easy to understand the current state of climate change from that document.
0: And, and you say that the data is also available for, for anybody. I don't know if that's like a Freedom of Information Act or something that applies to this sort of data or it's just that scientists are quite happy for their... Data to be in the public sphere, but people can then go and interpret that data or use that data uh, in their own uh, way. Is that is that correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the data is available through a web portal. So I think it's um, if you just Google or use your search engine of choice and look for cmip six data, it's available. You click on the ones that you want, and you click the download button. Now the, the it is big. It's very large files. Just the um, the UK's contribution, so the U- UKESM and HADGEM3, uh, is the other UK's um, climate model, between the two of them, they've produced five petagrams of data.
0: So I think what Lean means here is a petabyte of data storage, which is equal to one million gigabytes. So make sure you've cleared up all your erroneous documents and made a little bit of space before you start downloading a file of that size. A petagram is a unit of mass and it's equal to one with 15 zeros after it, so 10 to the 15 grams, and it's often used to describe carbon dioxide.
1: For um, CMIP6, so that will, you know, that will fill up your laptop several times over if you want to download all of it. So I think you need to be a, a little bit sort of cautious in terms of what you actually want to look at, but it's all there and there's, you know, a hundred models that are available.
0: Right. Uh, but basically that, so obviously working with data of that kind of quantity requires quite sophisticated uh, core processors. You're not really going to be able to run it off a 10 year old Dell Inspiron laptop like I'm using, I suppose.
1: Well, it depends on the on what you're looking at. Some things are a lot of the work is already done for you. For instance, if you wanted to look at the um, global sea surface temperature average, that data set may well exist as and it'll be um, it won't have the latitude or longitude components or the depth, it will just be a one dimension a time dimensional data set. So for, that will be a few hundred kilobytes. It'd be very easy to download. But if you want to look at something like the surface flux of CO two or ice extents, like that may be a little bit harder.
0: Right. So keep it simple, that's what you're saying. Keep your search search enquiries quite simple if you want to if if you want to get get focus it, pinpoint focus. Don't don't start uh, going going too wide on your on your remit of Of search data because it's because there's a lot of data there which is which is good for the good for the scientists but difficult for your uh bt broadband
1: yeah yeah it could very quickly get overwhelming there's so much there (laughs) but you know there's lots of people that are willing to help there's lots I'm, i'm more than willing to answer questions on it if people want to get in contact with me
0: yeah, uh, well, uh, here's a question though: What's the most commonly sort of downloaded data? Uh, do you know that sort of thing? What's what's the most commonly downloaded Actually, data?
1: I, I don't know. I imagine it would be the um, the surface temperature data like sets. Hmm. I imagine that would be the most
0: common one. So the next piece of music that we're going to listen to is called the World Ocean Day Quintet. Uh, and I believe that you published that on the eighth of June this year to coincide with World Ocean Day. And now you work for Plymouth Marine Laboratory, uh, and even though it's just a you know it's it's an office, that is a special day for PML, isn't it? Because it's that's its business. To uh, would you agree with that statement? Yeah,
1: I mean, the um, World Ocean Day is always a, a day that's. You know, it, we we try to market in one way or another, whether it's just by, you know, discussing the ocean's health or trying to share things with uh, the wider community. And so, this is one of the things that that we did is just to try to to share a new piece of music.
0: And this piece of music, um, it didn't use pianos. So this is this the first time you try to use uh, sort of different parts of the orchestra to make uh, music.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is the, the first piece that I produced without using the, um, the, the you know, piano synthesizer. So the reasoning for that is this was actually the first piece that I produced while on lockdown. So I, I had access to all of the tools that I have from my home instead of the ones that are in my office. So it's actually a lot more, I had a lot more freedom in terms of the instrumentation and also a, a bit more, um, a, a few more instruments available basically. So I decided to make, I've, I always wanted to produce a string quintet, but I just couldn't find a way to get it to work from my work machine. So uh, this one, yeah, it's it's basically five parts. And there's, uh, there's two violins, a viola, a cello, and a double bass. Once again, this is played by a, a, a synthesizer instead of real musicians, unfortunately. Would,
0: would one day you like this to be sort of transcribed into musical notation and be played by... Uh live live instruments oh
1: i I would absolutely love to hear a live version of it i think that the as good as the synthesized instruments are it's nothing compared to a, a a real performance
0: okay well let's let's listen let's have a listen to it now Thank you for sharing that with us, and that's a very recent piece, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it was uh, from earlier this summer. So um, in this piece, it, um, it has various future scenarios, um, a wide range of all five scenarios. But the the interesting thing is that the the dataset we used was the um, the marine primary production. So uh, primary production is the amount of growth by the uh, phytoplankton in, in our model. So how quickly marine plants are growing, how much they're growing. And one of the things that you'll see here is that in the historical scenario, they all are in the same sort of range around uh, 48 kilograms per year. And then when we get into the future scenarios, there's um the models with the you know, strongest climate change have the largest reduction in marine primary production which means that if we have worse climate change we have less life in the ocean yeah one what, what of the the musical techniques that we used here was as well as linking the pitch with the um, data we also linked the volume the loudness of each instrument so as you get the sort of the, the oceans becoming less full of life the the music becomes significantly quieter as well Uh, and i think that combined with the selection of minor chords that we use it actually kind of it tries it does try to evoke that emotional response again that we should feel bad for the oceans as it gets quieter you do hear it dying a little bit
0: As we were planning this podcast, we decided to reach out to the communities in Plymouth College of Art to give the opportunity for people to ask any questions for Lee. So we're just going to do a really short segment with you, Lee, if that's all right, with just a few, if you've got time for those today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And they've come in anonymously, so I can't give the name of whoever submitted these questions. If you're ready, uh, I'll fire a few off at you. And the first question that we have is, is it now too late to reverse climate change?
1: Well, um, we've already had around one degree of warming relative to the pre-industrial period. And we're likely locked in to 1.5 degrees of of warming in total. So another half a degree warming by the end of this century. Uh, Beyond that, it's possible we'll have to, and also Quite likely, unless we really make some significant changes in the next ten years, and um, beyond that, three is hopefully less likely. But yes, we are we are too late to reverse all climate change.
0: Are you ready for your next question? Yeah, yeah, sure. Is carbon offsetting actually advantageous?
1: Well, it's it's a bit of a thorny issue, and it really needs a lot of thought and clarification. I mean, I'd like to preface it by saying I'm not an expert in this area. And it's not something that I've personally worked on, but there's, um, if carbon offsetting is just growing forests, then there's a lot of issues that need to be addressed before you can just start planting trees. For instance, if you just grow a monoculture of a single tree forest, you know, that can affect the biodiversity. It may affect the, the, um, the map, the land life that lives in that forest. Uh, if you try to grow a forest at a high latitude in places that would be you know, historically covered in snow, then you're affecting the local albedo and making the land darker in winter. So you're actually adding additional warming to that region. And if, if you plant the trees in um, like a, a grassland or a savanna, then you're, you're changing the natural environment and that can also have risks. There's also the open question of, um, you know, what is what a forest fire is going to look like in 30 to 50 years? What if you plant a huge trillion tree forest in a region that is going to be highly susceptible to forest fires in 30 years? And but then that that raises the chicken and egg scenario. You know, will it be susceptible if you plant the forest or not? And um, it's actually there's there's a lot of there's a lot of open questions over it. But that doesn't mean that it's that it's all bad. You know, it is a good way to like, absorb carbon out of the atmosphere in the short term. We just need to make sure that it stays out of the atmosphere in the long term.
0: Thank you. That's a, uh, a really in-depth answer to, like you said, a thorny issue. Uh, and I hope that actually helps to sort of th- rethink this assumption that um offsetting is the way forward um so so thank you for that so um because plymouth college of art is an art college i've also got a couple of questions that sort of um uh, head in that direction are you are you happy to answer a couple of those
1: of course once again i can try (laughs) (laughs)
0: um so um i'm not sure who asked this question um but it is who do you want or need to reach beyond the scientific community with your research projects? Well, so,
1: um, yeah, in in general, we want the, the wider public to be as knowledgeable as possible about science, especially climate change science. You know, there's a lot of, there may be a lot of issues out there where people, while they're aware of climate change, they might not fully understand, you know, how we can say certain things or how our methods work. And so with the Earth System Music Project, we really just want people to sort of understand the methods. And hopefully if people understand the methods, then there'll be uh, less distrust in climate sciences.
0: Great, thank you. That's a a good answer and I like it. So the next question is, what do you think can be the contribution to some of the issues mentioned uh, by artists and creative communities in general and how would you see them respond to the empirical data provided by institutions such as the Met? So,
1: yeah, artists can, can really help us understand the science but, and really can us, allow us to interpret the science in new and interesting ways. But, and I think artists can also help us understand how to feel we should feel about the scientific results
0: great thank you so the final question i think for today is what role do you think that artists have in all aspects of projects such as the uk system model and in the reinterpretation of data
1: so i think that artists and art plays a big role in um, science communication so taking the sort of the core scientific results and translating it into something that can be understood and appreciated by the wider audiences. That's not just the role of the scientist, but the role of the artist in science. And some of the greatest science communicators that you know, like David Attenborough or Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson, they will take you know this underlying science and use whatever tools they have, whether it's a a visual interpretation, you know, some auditory, a television show, a a book. And these are ways that we actually can get science into people's living rooms and in front of their, you know, in in front of people and getting as many people as possible to appreciate the science. And there is a significant role for, for artists in that process.
0: Well, that's a very uplifting note to end on. Have you any closing thoughts, Lee?
1: Yeah, well, um, thanks for having me today. It's been a really interesting chat. And uh, I'd just like to say that uh, anyone who's interested in the music or methodology of this, the uh, Earth System Music Project, should check out the YouTube channel that contains these pieces and a few others. You just go to YouTube and search for Lee DeMora, all in one word. Uh, The links will be included in the description page. The scientific methods that we use to create the music is fully described in an upcoming Geoscience Communications publication with the ID code GC201928. And uh, yeah, finally, I'd just like to encourage other scientists to think about how their work could be sonified. It may turn out that you have you know, beautiful and unique music hidden within your datasets.
0: Thanks a lot. That's very nice. Thank you, Lee. Uh, so, this only th- leads me to thank my guest today, Dr. Lee Demora, for his time and effort and contribution to this episode of the Number Station podcast. And to play us out, a final piece of music entitled The Ocean Acidification in E Minor.